This is Anand Finnegala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Professor Robert Alter. We've had him on before to speak with us on the David story, and afterward to speak more generally on his project of completing the entire Hebrew Bible, which will be out this December. We now bring him back to discuss Koheleth, or in more common terms, Ecclesiastes, as well as Isaiah chapters 40 to 55, or what modern biblical scholars call Second Isaiah. Both have fascinating places in the whole Bible. One speaks of despair, the other provides consolation. One speaks of the order of us continuing the way it does, the other promises a new world where all things are restored. The one is skeptical, the other is trusting. So I'm pleased to welcome Professor Alter back to the Letter of Liberty. I'm glad to be here. So, <clears throat> how does Koholet or Ecclesiastes work in the Bible compared to the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Torah, or even compared to Job, the other great skeptical book of the Old Testament? Well, uh, it, it is, in a way, the most radical text in the Hebrew Bible. Um one has to keep in mind that that um, there's a good deal of diversity w- within the, the various books uh, repres- assembled in, in the Hebrew Bible, and uh, this diversity becomes much more pronounced in the late biblical period. Uh, that is, uh, I would say, from the the late. Um, 6th century BCE uh, onward, uh, all the way to Daniel in in the 2nd century BCE. So Kohelet is, uh, to begin with, like the other wisdom books, uh, there's no national perspective. Uh, It's the closest thing in the Hebrew Bible to a philosophical text. Uh, It's not systematic philosophy as you begin to find among the Greeks, but uh, it is a series of reflections on the human condition, on the the nature of um, time and causation, uh, on uh, value, and so forth. And uh, it is uh, really a... um, a radical turn away from the kinds of values you find in um, the five books of Moses and uh, in the prophets, uh, where um, uh, nothing really amounts to, to, to anything. Everything turns into mere breath. All human activity is futile. Here's how it begins in the translation you provided. The words of Kohalet, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Merest breath, said Kohalet, merest breath, all is mere breath. What gain is there for man in all his toil that he toils under the sun? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth endures forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and to its place it glides, there it rises. It goes to the south and swings round to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its rounds the wind returns. All the rivers go to the sea, and the sea is not full. 
to the place that the rivers go, there they return to go. All things are weary, a man cannot speak, the eye is not sated with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which was is that which will be, and that which was done is that which will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah, what, what I would uh, immediately comment about that in terms of the radicalism of Kohelet is that um, basically the notion of time and human activity that you, you get in, in the earlier books of the Bible is a progression. In a way, it's figured in the creation story where you have a progression of things created from one day to the to the next uh culminating in the creation of the human creature and then the the sabbath celebrated by God when he rests from all his work and here things go round and round they don't progress and then later on in Ecclesiastes 3, he says that there's going to be a time for everything. I'll go on to that and read a bit of that. Okay, go ahead. Everything has a season and a time for every matter under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal a time to rip down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to fling stones and a time to gather stones in, a time to embrace and a time to pull back from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to fling away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain is there for him who does in what he toils? Well, the, the, this is a, another instance of how um, Kohelet swerves away from what I would characterize as mainline wisdom literature, which... Uh, above all in the Hebrew Bible, is the book of Proverbs. That, that is, uh, in the book of Proverbs, you're given practical advice of um, how to live your life, you know, what to avoid, you know, stay away from a seductress, uh, don't, don't uh, make a, a financial pledge to somebody that would commit your uh, resources and perhaps destroy them and so on and so forth. Now, uh, Kohelet doesn't have uh, pragmatic advice like that. Instead, he is a, a very unblinking observer of the world. So in, in this catalog of a time for this and a time for that, which is a kind of prose poem, uh, that is, it doesn't quite scan like biblical poetry, but it has a certain uh, rhythm to it. And it's a great prose poem, I, I think. He's simply observing, and he's observing that that, uh, that human life has this alternation. At times uh, we rejoice, at times we are mourning, 
at times we embrace, at times we pull back from embrace, and so forth. And then his like theological radicalism later gives way to a kind of political conservatism because if everything is going to be the same, if it's going to return in cycles rather than progress, then there is almost no real point in imagining a future promise of hope and redemption as the prophets like Second Isaiah do to some extent. And we have to say to some extent, as Alexander Pope said, whatever is, is right. And I think this shows a bit in Koholet, especially when he's talking about kings. And even as a piece of wisdom literature, he still affirms that wisdom has value and that there is a God. Yeah, uh, uh, now, uh, of course, w w his affirmation of wisdom having value uh, is, uh, you might say it's, dialectical that, that is uh, on the one hand he he thinks that that it, it's better to have wisdom than to be a fool or to be ignorant uh, on on the other hand uh, he he says at a couple of points that that uh, the the fate of the wise and the the fate of the um, the the ignorant amounts to the same thing and now let's talk about the wisdom of Solomon himself, because he's the one that it's sort of attributed to in tradition. But we don't actually know who Koholeth is. No, we don't. But it's like said that he's like a preacher who teaches wisdom. He's kind of like a Socrates to some extent, if we have to imagine. In the epilogue, it says that he taught wisdom to many people and that he was teaching the maxims and parables and all that stuff. So... While Solomon did something of this sort, maybe Solomon didn't have this professional wisdom career that a professional wisdom teacher like a sophist or even Socrates would have, I think. No, but, but uh, the thing is that uh, uh, in a legendary way, uh, Solomon is associated with uh, wisdom. That is, when... Uh, God appears to him in a night vision and uh, asks him what gift he would want uh, from God. Solomon says, I, I only want wisdom, and God grants him that. And then what follows immediately is uh, the, 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 uh, the famous uh, story of the, uh, uh, the two women who give birth, uh, one of whose one of whom loses her child and the other doesn't, and they both claim that the live child is, is theirs. Um, so th this is a kind of fable-like manifestation of, of um, uh, Solomon's wisdom. And then, of course, his wisdom is manifest in the visit of the Queen of Sheba when she poses all kinds of riddles to him that we don't actually have the content of the riddles and uh, uh, he's able to answer every one and she says your wisdom surpasses even what I've heard of it and then finally the, there's a brief verse uh, somewhere in Kings in, in which um, uh, uh, Solomon is said to have composed um, uh, so many Parables so that is a thousand or, or, or so. So, uh, in terms of the legendary tradition about the, this king, he is the paragon of, of human 
wisdom. And, and so it's not all that surprising that Kohelet or the editor of Kohelet w- would want to associate um, uh, this book w- with Solomon. Now, uh, Jewish and I think Christian tradition thinks that, that Solomon is actually the author of Kohelet. Uh, the, the, there's this um, uh, fetching notion uh, in the, the Talmud that when Solomon was a young man and full of vigor, we would say with, with uh, pulsating hormones, he composed the Song of Songs uh, as a, a series of, of love poems. And when he arrived uh, at the uh, sober reflectiveness of middle age, he composed the Book of Proverbs. And in his old age, uh, disillusioned with uh, what life offers, he composed Kohelet. Now, this, of course, is not historical, uh, and the author of Kohelet certainly lived uh, more than half a millennium after King Solomon, but it uh, it shows you how the the tradition shapes its uh, perception uh, of uh, the legendary Solomon. And I've heard an alternative explanation that he actually wrote Kohelet in the younger years of his life when, because you're young, you might actually be more open to cynical understandings of life. And that I actually wrote Song of Songs or Shir Hashirim near the end of his life when he was more open to love after years of experience. I think Stephen Weitzman in a book on Solomon, The Lure of Wisdom, plays with this idea. And it is an interesting idea, actually. Yeah, it's an interesting. It's not all that convincing, I think, but but I do admire Stephen Weitzman's uh, book. It is uh, playful and suggestive, and shows how a uh, a tradition uh, with only few hints from the biblical text shapes stories about uh, King Solomon. But if life is meaningless, as Kohelet says, or it's, if it's merest breath, or in the King James, if it's vanity, his solution seems to be like, enjoy sensual pleasures, but be reflective of your own time. And here's what he has to say. Everything he, God, has done aptly in his time. Eternity, too, he has put in their heart. Without man's grasping at all what it is God has done from beginning to end, I know that there is nothing good in it but to be merry and to partake of the good things in his life and also every man who eats and drinks and enjoys good things in all his toil this is a gift from God and even now we see a a problem or conundrum where even to just enjoy the basic sensual pleasures that's a gift from God this is not anything that's guaranteed in life right that, that is uh, uh, you could have the means to uh, sit under your vine and under your fig tree and uh, enjoy a, 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 a goblet of wine and, and good food and uh, be and the companionship of, of the wife whom you love, which is something that uh, Kohelet uh, advises. Uh, but 
you have to have a certain amount of luck to uh, to have all that. That that is, you might you might end up with a, a wife whom you don't love. You might be stricken with cancer or some other dread disease. Uh, so uh, he pushes a kind of um, realistic hedonism. That that is, he does warn against the 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 pursuit of sensual pleasure as an ultimate end in life. He, in the autobiographical, I think it's the second chapter, he talks about seeing revelry and debauchery, and this too is a mere breath and uh, hurting the wind, he says. But um, a kind of measured hedonism makes sense to him because if you have only this life and you you can't count uh, on uh, anything beyond it, and I, I should add here that, that there seems to be uh, an undercurrent of polemic and cohelet against a uh, recently emerging notion of an afterlife. So if you can't count uh, on anything beyond this life, uh, and you you really can't count on the substantiveness uh, of uh, any uh, achievement, any action that, that you might aspire to, uh, then you 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 might as well if God lets you, or, and God sometimes seems close to something like fate, uh, not, not at all the the, uh, uh, the God of uh, the, the uh, of Genesis, I would say. Uh, if circumstances permit, you you might as well. Uh, take advantage uh, of the pleasures of here and now while you still have them. And that's ultimately from a spirit of seize the day to an extent, and that means you shouldn't really reflect too much in nostalgia, because he says, Say not, what has happened that the days gone by were better than these? For you ask not about this in wisdom. Because I think this is a valuable lesson for all of us to some extent in case we have temptations to nostalgize the 80s or the 50s or any other time when things were like cooler right, than today. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially, I won't say there's a nostalgia in many of the other biblical books, but there's definitely a focus on how things in the past were better when Israel was more faithful or when God was more close to them. And Kohelet, I think, is sensing to tell us not to do this. Am I right? Yeah, I think that's right. For example, uh, uh, at the beginning of Jeremiah, that is when when God says to Israel, uh, I remember our honeymoon period in the wilderness when you came after me and uh, uh, there was this harmony between uh, God and Israel, and Kohelet argues something, as you say, quite the opposite. 
I just want to jump onto something else. Do you think Koholet is sure. exactly misogynistic? Because here's this passage I find, and I find woman more bitter than death, for she is all snares and nets her heart and fetters her arms. He who is good before God will escape her, and an offender will be trapped by her. See, this I have found, said Koholet, one by one to find a reckoning. Further I sought and did not find. One man in a thousand I found, and a woman among all these I did not find. Yeah, that, that's certainly misogynistic, uh, and um, uh, this Kohelet, after all, uh, for all his liberation from received ideas, is a member of a patriarchal culture, and so there is th- this uh, notion that that. Uh, that uh, women can turn into traps uh, that, that they uh, uh, seduce and deceive men, uh, and they're not to be trusted. Uh, the flip side, because there's a, a lot of what I've already characterized a, a dialectical movement back and forth between uh, opposing ideas. That, that is one of the things that I think is intellectually compelling about Kohelet is that it's um, a kind of restless intellectual inquiry. Uh, That is, he weighs one idea and seems to embrace it, and then he moves to its opposite. So the the counterpoint to uh, the misogyny of the passage you just read, of course, is his... uh, affirmation uh, of the the, uh, the su- supreme pleasure of married life. And even in Proverbs 5, which has a lot of, in some ways, misogynistic and definitely sexist, to some extent, treatments of stranger women, there's this passage in Proverbs which praises having sex with your wife as being with the fountain, and let's not neglect Shir Hashirim or the Song of Songs, which is right, not quite right, married sure. life, but it's definitely a celebration of sexuality, which we don't really see in anywhere other parts of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, that's right. But ultimately, we are going to die, and this is what Koholat has to say from chapter 9. This is the evil in all that is done under the sun. For all have a single fate, and also the heart of the sons of man is full of evil, and mad revelry in their heart while they live, and afterward, off to the dead. For he who is joined to the living knows one sure thing, that a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living knows that they will die, and the dead know nothing, and they no longer have recompense, for their memory is forgotten, their love and their hatred as well, their jealousy too are already lost, and they no longer have any share forever in all that is done under the sun. And I want to move on to some references which I can tease out from that to Achilles in both the Iliad and Odyssey. In the Iliad, he says something like, you can get all this stuff, but when your life is gone, it's gone. And in the Odyssey, he says, like, I would rather live as a slave than be king of the dead. And then a scene in Blade Runner where the replicant says something like, I have seen all of this washed away like tears in the rain. Right. Yeah, the, I, I think there's a, a certain affinity in worldview uh, between um, Kohelet and uh, the, the uh, Homeric bards. Um, I don't, I'm not arguing for influence uh, that, that is 
some scholars you probably know uh, imagine that, that uh, Kohelet actually knew something about Stoicism and Greek philosophy. Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure. Um, uh, a, a counter-argument has been made that, that if the book was composed late enough in the 4th century BCE uh, to be after Alexander's conquest uh, of the Middle East, you would expect uh, at least a couple of uh, Greek um, loanwords, as, as you find in Daniel, for example. But uh, there are no Greek loanwords. So perhaps the book is actually very late in the, the, the Persian period. But uh, there, there are, of course, there is such a thing as um, Mediterranean culture, uh, uh, even though the the um, uh, the Hebrew culture was monotheistic, or maybe one should say more or less monotheistic, and the Greek culture was polytheistic. There, there are there are points of analogy. Yeah. And I and I want to bring bring it back to this good verse from Ecclesiastes nine, which is also good in the King James. But I'll read your translation. I returned to see under the sun that not to the swift is the race, and not to the mighty the battle, nor to the wise bread, nor to the discerning wealth, nor to those who know favor. For a time of mishap will befall them all. You know now that again is an illustration of the divergence of Kohelet from mainline wisdom writing in, in the Bible. Because uh, you read Proverbs uh, and uh, you ex- you're uh, encouraged to count on the fact that, that, that wisdom will pay off, that prudent wisdom, or I should say prudential wisdom. Whereas uh, Kohelet, with, with his... Uh, uh, very uh, uncompromising, uh, re- realistic vision of the circumstances of human life says that you can't really count on anything. You can be uh, wise, uh, and yet uh, the circumstances of life can uh, give you misery. Uh, you, you can be... Uh, a uh, heroic warrior, uh, and, and yet maybe the circumstances of, of warfare or, or whatever will bring you defeat, and so on and so forth. And it also differs from the Psalms and the prophets, because a psalmist or a prophet might write something like this, and then he'll say something near the end of, like, hope in God, for God is stronger than all of these, for not to the mighty is strength, but it is God who delivers. Whereas in Ecclesiastes, it just says, a time of mishap will happen to all of them. There's no help. Right. Or, or, or again, in, in, in Psalms, uh, I, I, th- I'm sort of translating ad hoc from the memory of the Hebrew. Because I, I remember the Hebrew verses, but not my own translation necessarily, that uh, uh, I've been a lad and also grown old, and I, I've never seen... A, uh, a righteous man wanting for bread. Um, 
Now, th- th- this is something that Kohelet would vehemently uh, reject. Uh, that, that is, he says, look around you. Of course, Job, from another angle, would also <laughs> reject it. But look around you, he says. Uh, you uh, uh, Being righteous or wise or, or anything virtuous does not guarantee a happy fate. Yes. I know we're kind of speeding a bit through Koholet because I also want to talk about Second Isaiah, so I'll go right to chapter yeah, 12. Yeah, well, let's do that then. Okay. Chapter 12. And recall your Creator in the days of your prime until the days of evil come and the years arrive when you will say, I have no delight in them until the sun goes dark and the light and the moon and the stars and the clouds come back after the rain. On the day that the guards of the house will quake and the stalwart men be twisted and the maids who grow go idle, for they are now few. And those who look from the casements go dark, and the double doors close in the market as the sound of the mill sinks down, and the sound of the bird arises, and all the songstresses are bowed. Of the very height they are afraid, and terror is in the road, and the almond blossoms, and the locust tree is laden, and the caper fruit falls apart, for man is going to his everlasting house, and the mourners turn round in the market, until the silver cord is snapped, and the golden bowl is smashed, and the pitcher is broken against the well, and the jug smashed at the pit and dust returns to the earth as it was and the life breath returns to God who gave it merest breath said Koheleth all is mere breath this is the true end of the poem or the prose poem and of course there's an epilogue by the compiler of sorts who says that he went on to go teach more people and then he gives a message of fearing God keeping his commandments for that is all humankind but Koheleth himself ends with merest breath or Hevel Havalim Hakol Havel Right. Yeah, the, 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 uh, this simply illustrates what we've been talking about for for the last uh, few minutes. That it, it that, that prose poem. It's really a great moving poem. Uh, is uh, some of the details are mystifying, and various commentators have tried to relate the imagery to the human body and various other things, but but clearly um, uh, man going to his everlasting home makes it evident that that, uh, the prose poem is about the inevitability of mortality, that that, uh, 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 okay. Mortality wipes out everything, uh, and uh, that's Kohelet's. I would say it's his bottom line. And now on to Second Isaiah. For listeners, the Book of Isaiah consists of sixty-six chapters, and it's generally assumed in traditional Christian and Jewish circles as a continuous work. But modern scholars and even biblical scholars of the past hundred or so years have divided it into three sections. First, Isaiah, which is from chapters 1 to 39. Second, Isaiah, which is 40 to 55. And third, Isaiah, which is 56 to 66. I'm going to focus mostly on second Isaiah, which is the basis of a lot of Handel's Messiah, has the suffering servant songs, has the great prophecy in Isaiah 53 about the man of sorrows who is wounded, and of course that classic passage of human comfort and all the promises of redemption from Robert Alto's translation, which I picked up from an article of his comfort 
O comfort my people, says your God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call out to her, for her term of service is ended, her crime is expiated, for she has taken from the Lord's hand double for all her offences. A voice calls out in the wilderness, Clear a way for the Lord's road, level in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted high, and every mountain brought low, and the crooked shall be straight, and the ridges become a valley. And the Lord's glory shall be revealed, and all flesh together shall see that the Lord's mouth has spoken. A voice calls out, saying, Call! And I said, What shall I call? All flesh is grass, and all its trust like the flowers of the field. Grass dries up and flower fades, for the Lord's wind has blown upon it. The people indeed is grass. Grass dries up, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. On a high mountain go up, O herald of Zion. Raise your voice mightily, raise it, do not fear. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. Look, the master Lord shall come in power, his arm commanding for him. Look, his reward is with him, his wages before him. Like a shepherd he minds his flock with his arm, he gathers his lambs. And in his lap he bears them, leads the ewes. Okay. <laughs> well, um, I, I guess what, what to give this little context for your listeners... I would say the the following that um the the poets uh, the poet prophets who um were active in um toward the end of the uh, uh the first um Israelite commonwealth uh by and large I mean they have uh some visions of redemption and future restoration and so forth. But I, I think that the, the bulk of their prophecies are prophecies of castigation, condemnation, and uh, and visions of impending doom if Israel doesn't change its ways. Um, and this is true of Ezekiel, who, um, now he's not exactly a poet prophet, uh, although I suppose his visionary passages have a, a kind of um, poetic power, although they're not cast in verse. Uh, and, and we know, since he kind of dates his prophecies in such and such a year, uh, meaning such and such a year, the, the, um, uh, the Babylonian exile, uh, so all his prophecies are in the Babylonian exile, but uh, fairly, quite early in, in the Babylonian exile. So here we have doom and gloom in, in, in all these prophets. And then the kingdom of Judah is utterly destroyed. Uh, a, a large part of, of its population is um, deported to... Um, uh, Babylonia, and um, the fate of deported populations uh, under imperial conquest had always been that they disappear. That's what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel, the, the so-called Ten Lost Tribes. The Assyrians, following general Assyrian policy, uh, uh, scattered them throughout the, their empire and brought in uh, populations from elsewhere, 
And that was really the, the end of those ten tribes. So that the prospect of extinction must have been somewhere in the minds of most of the exiles. And along comes the, this anonymous prophet of the um, probably the first few decades of the Babylonian exile. And he says, no, we should have hope that, that God is going to restore us uh, as as of old. Uh, and uh, I, I would underline the fact that, that his vehicle of poetry is very important for his message. It, it is really beautiful poetry, and uh, it is a way of persuading to the extent that he can his listeners that, uh, of the truth of his method his message of consolation. As for his poetry, I completely agree. I remember Emily Dickinson once said, if I can feel it off the top of my head or something like that, it's poetry. And I definitely feel that when reading the book of Isaiah, not just 2nd Isaiah, but even 1st Isaiah, 3rd Isaiah. Yeah. And here's an example from 1st Isaiah of the disaster poetry, so to speak, from Isaiah 24. Shatter, the earth will shatter. Crumble, the earth will crumble. Totter, the earth will totter. Sway, the earth will sway like a drunkard and will shake like a hut. Its crime will weigh upon it. It will fall and rise no more. And what a difference you get with the second Isaiah passages. Right, right. And then an interesting figure comes up, the suffering servant who in later tradition was interpreted by the Jews as Israel and by Christians as the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will be the one who suffers, who is the man of sorrows, who will die on the cross, who will be rejected by God, but who will rise again on the third day and defeat death. Yes, now, uh, I think biblical scholars today um, uh, don't, uh, almost universally, don't think that this is a reference to... uh, 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 or a, a prediction of the fate uh, of Jesus. Um, that, that is, the, that reading is based on um, a, a typological reading of uh, Hebrew scripture by Christian scripture. Uh, l- let me explain again for, for your uh, listeners that uh, typology means, uh, at least in the case of the relation of Old Testament to New, that um, that virtually everything in the Hebrew Bible is an intimation of what will be fulfilled in Christian Scripture. Uh, so that, let's say, Jonah in the belly of the whale three days and three nights is uh, 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 Christ descending into the underworld after the crucifixion and then rising to resurrection. And so there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of examples that that could be cited. So uh, reading the suffering servant uh, as a, 
a prophecy uh, of uh, Christ is definitely uh, part of this typological reading uh, of uh, Hebrew scripture. Um, I tend to think that um, the suffering servant is the prophet himself. The, 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 these passages are autobiographical. That is, um, as with all the prophets, including the prophets of doom, there was no easy relation between the prophet and his audience. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe people were not, uh, the exiles were not willing to uh, believe these uh, prophecies of national restoration, uh, and they mocked and even physically attacked the prophet. Uh, and I think that's probably what's going on. But I have from the King James, which I'll read from Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment on the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. And going down a bit, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. And if your interpretation that this is the prophet himself is correct, then there is a deliberate hyperbole going on here, where the prophet is imagined as a liberator, a comforter, who is himself rejected, but who will be ultimately vindicated in the end, and ultimately the promise will be vindicated for the people of God. Right. Now, this is consistent with earlier conceptions, or I would say rep representations, in, in the books of the prophets themselves, uh, of the role of the prophet. Uh, th that is, uh, the... The prophets are conceived as elected by God to uh, uh, bring a, a, a message of divine truth to uh, his uh, listeners. And um, uh, there is also, for example, Jeremiah might, might be particularly relevant here. That, that is, Jeremiah is, uh, above all, uh, a a doomsaying prophet, uh, from which we, uh, and because of that, we get the English noun Jeremiah uh, as uh, uh, a reflection of the tenor of his, the dark tenor of his prophecies. And we know from the um, autobiographical passages in, in Jeremiah that, that he was reviled. The, 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 there were schemes on his life. He was thrown into a, a, a pit, um, and uh, he um, he had this sense that that, that uh, the um, the mandate of prophecy was uh, torment for him. Uh, there's one point where he even wishes he could 
uh, die like or never have been born a passage that was adapted and transformed in the third chapter of Job. Um, but um, God also says to him, and that accords with the passage you've just read, that I will be a wall and a protection for you and keep you safe. And ultimately, we need to meditate on the role of God in Second Isaiah. From Isaiah 45, I have a passage which I've been thinking on for some time. Isaiah 45, 5-7, the King James. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And with regard to verse 7, it says God himself is saying, I create evil. And this poses some interesting ideas of thinking because is God saying that he creates good and evil or is he creating evil in the sense of disasters like earthquakes and all that stuff? And this has sometimes led people to question the very goodness of God because how can a good God create evil? And the word Ra has been used in context of even moral evil and badness right. in general. So what do you tend to think for our listeners? Okay, now first, uh, let me say this, beginning with, with uh, the start of the passage uh, that you just read. Uh, biblical monotheism evolves. Uh, the, uh, the one God of many of the earlier biblical texts is not quite the one God of Thomas Aquinas, uh, or Maimonides. Uh, uh, famously, at, at the end of the Song of the Sea in uh, um, Exodus 15, uh, and you know many biblical scholars have pointed this out. Uh, the, the, there's uh, this line: "Who is like unto you, uh, O Lord, among the gods?" Now that suggests that there are other gods. There are other gods, but they don't amount to a row of beans. That is, there's one big guy up there uh, who who is powerful, uh, and uh, the, the others are, we might say, godlets, something like that. Um, now, by the time we get to Second Isaiah, uh, you have an articulation of a, a, um, a very uh, pure kind of monotheism. That is, there is one God, there can't possibly be another, and this one God is responsible for everything. So if, in fact, as we all recognize, there there is... Uh, evil in our world, it couldn't possibly come from some source outside of God, some uh, demonic deity or from Satan in later uh, tradition. Uh, that too must come from God in ways that, that we, we can't quite fathom. Uh, 
some people have seen this line. Uh, I don't know if it's too early or not uh, as um, a rejoinder to uh, uh, dualism, to the kind of dualism you have in Zoroastrianism. Yes, and as for God's creation of evil, am I correct to assume that Jewish tradition has been a little more comfortable with this than Christianity? Yeah, probably. Okay. Uh, for, for example, the, the although definitely in in later Judaism, in, in rabbinic Judaism, you you do have a um, a, a mythological entity which is sometimes called Satan. That, that, that is, uh, uh, Satan, the Hebrew Satan, in the Hebrew Bible proper, it always appears with the, um, in Job certainly, with the definite article, Ha-Satan, the Satan. And there it's just something like an adversary, a spirit of denial or something like that, but but not a full-fledged uh, satanic figure. But that does uh, evolve in uh, rabbinic Judaism as it does in Christianity. Uh, and, um, you know, later Jewish folklore uh, has... has uh, a lot to say about the demonic presences. You know, if you read the the, the fiction uh, of uh, the, the great Yiddish uh, writer Isaac Bashev Singer, you see it swarms with all kinds of demons. Um, however, um, I, I would still say that that, that um, Satan and the idea of Satanism, the, the demonic. Uh, plays a, a, um, a less powerful role in Judaism than it does in Christianity. But before I move on to close this episode with a moving passage from Second Isaiah, I want to say, do you think that God's creation of evil means that he is somehow evil himself, at least the way some understood it? No, I, I think uh, my, my own response would... would would go back to uh, the voice from the world in, in, in Job. That, that, that is, uh, the, there are all kinds of contradictory aspects to human experience that we, we can't quite fathom. You know, how can it be that, that a, a, a dictator who murders millions of people can arise in human history and, and and we don't know, uh, but uh, the, the, the the reality we face is one shot through with insoluble contradictions, and the presence of evil is one of them. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And so I want to close with a passage which I find immensely beautiful. It's from your... Isaiah translation, I presume. It's in the Art of Biblical Poetry. So I'm going to read from there. Okay. Isaiah 49, verses 14 to 23. Zion says, The Lord has forsaken me, and my master has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her babe, reject the child of her womb? Though she forget, I will not forget you. Look, 
On my palms I inscribe you, your walls are ever before me. Your children hurry forth, your destroyers and ravagers leave you. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They are all gathered, coming to you. By my life, declares the Lord, you shall wear them like jewels, tie on them, tie them on like a bride. Your ruins and your desolation, your land laid waste. Now you'll be crowded with dwellers, and your devourers will go far off. Your children deemed lost will yet say in your years, The place is too crowded for me. Move off from me that I may dwell here. And you will say in your heart, Who bore these for me when I was bereaved and barren, exiled and despised? And these who raised them, for I was left alone. These, where are they from? Thus saith the Lord God, Look, I will lift up my hand to the nations, to the peoples I will raise my banner, and they will bring your sons in their lap, and your daughters will be born on their shoulders, and kings will be your nursemaids, and great ladies give them suck. Face to the ground they will bow to you, and the dust of your feet they will lick. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be shamed. Yeah, now, the, the passage you read, which I, I agree, I think it's a very beautiful passage, is a, a wonderful illustration of what I said before about the importance of the vehicle of poetry for this prophet. And that's a reason why it's so crucial when you do a translation of the Bible to try to get something of the magic of the Hebrew poetry into the translation. That is, uh, the uh, okay, the, this prophet of the Babylonian exile is addressing uh, a, an audience uh, of shattered, exiled people whose kingdom has been devastated. They, they, they feel that they've lost everything. So how can he convey to them a vision of consolation. And he, he does it in two ways here. One is a, a biological image, which is people can understand what it is, the, the, the despair of a woman who has lost all her children and finds herself barren and alone. So he um, uh, uh, elaborates the, this uh, extraordinary birth imagery that, that uh, the woman who had despaired of children suddenly finds herself uh, with, with surrounded by offspring. Now, the, 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 the other leading poetic effect in this passage has to do with um, uh, with conquest, with domination uh, and liberation from domination. That that is, this is a powerless people. It's lost its national sovereignty. It's lost its land. Uh, it, 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 uh, it it finds itself virtually captives in the, the hands uh, of uh, uh, a powerful empire, something you, you get in uh, Psalm 137, you know, by the waters of Babylon, etc. So uh, he, uh, the poet, um, proposes a counter vision in, in which uh, 
not only will children be restored or more children will be born, not only will the people be returned to its land, but the relationship of dominator and dominated will be radically reversed. And the the kings of nations will lick the dust of your feet and uh, 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 the... The queens uh, of foreign nations will be the nursemaids for your children. It's very touching, I think. I completely agree. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your taking the time to discuss with us, for our listeners' sake, the power of these two great biblical books. I'm glad to have done it. And until next time, this has been the Letter of Liberty, where we have welcomed guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, history, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. <laughs>